Louise Bedford here. Just before we kick off with today's show, I wanted to let you know that for one week only, you can get up to 84% off a selection of my most popular trading education products available through tradinggame.com.au. Make no mistake. Your financial future is in your hands. So check out the audios, videos, and study courses that I have available at tradinggame.com.au. Now's your chance to develop your skills as a trader for up to 84% off, but only for the next week. Let's get on with the show. Hi, you guys. Caroline Stephen, financial journalist. My guest today is the famous Terence O'Dean. Terence is one of the best minds in the world in the field of behavioral economics. Up until 20 years ago, modern financial theory was dominated by the idea that people are rational when it comes to money. But Terence proved with statistical data the people aren't rational, and he helped turn the preachings of classical economics on its head. Terry analysed the trading records of hundreds of thousands of individual investors, and he put the empirical data on the issues in trading. Louise Bedford quotes his work in Trading Secrets, and to this day, he is still going out there showing through research the crazy decisions that investors make. In this interview, we talk about a few of the predictable patterns of behavior that investors display. First up, Louise Bedford shares her money story in Mind Power. I'm eight years old. My grandmother is clearly distressed. She's gripping onto my shoulders a bit too tightly. With a wild look in her eyes, she tells me, always be the one to make money, Louise. She who makes the gold makes the rules. Fast forward. I'm 12 years old, watching my mother shiver in the winter chill, knowing she doesn't have the money to buy a decent coat for herself. She bought one for me instead. I'm 14 years old, standing beside Mum as she sews my first bra on her sewing machine because Target bras are so expensive. I'm 17 years old on my first sophisticated date. We drove there in his MG convertible. He doesn't even look at the prices on the menu when he orders. I'm 20 years old. I leave home, start my first business and put on my very first trade. This is who I am. This is my money story. What did your early lessons about money teach you? I can tell you one thing for sure, that unless you overcome your early programming, you'll struggle making the dollars that you deserve in the markets. You will be the same person five years from now, except for the things you listen to, like this podcast, the books you read, and the people that you associate with. Your inputs now determine your outcomes for your future. 
So don't take this podcast for granted. Keep listening every single week so that you can live your trader's life. Need a little short-term trading magic in your life? Chris Tate and I are touring Australia to give you our one-day course so that you can trade the short-term trends and raid the markets. We're coming to the Gold Coast, Sydney, Perth and Melbourne. And you want to be in that room as we reveal our secrets. Go to tradinggame.com.au for details. Tradinggame.com.au Terry O'Dean is the Rudd Family Foundation Professor and Chair of Finance at the Huzz School, Berkeley, California. He's one of the best minds in the world on behavioural finance and he's put empirical data on the issue of trading. Terry, you'd think investors would be rational when it comes to money, but they're not, are they? Well, I guess I would ask back to you, why would you think that investors would be rational when it comes to money? We're not rational about much else. Well, that's a good throwback because money is so important. It is important, but so are relationships, and we screw those up with uh, (laughs) irrational behavior. Investing isn't that. It can be easy and it can be difficult. Uh, There are very simple approaches to investing. But one of the examples I sometimes give when, when I'm talking to my students, I say finance is harder than accounting. And the reason for that is human beings have a good grasp of quantities, but we don't have a good intuitive grasp of probability. And really, investing in the stock market and stuff like that, that all turns on on probability. You're talking like a professor already. And I've said (laughs) already. (laughs) Let's go to some of the deadly sins of trading. So firstly, let's talk about excessive trading. You did a 14-year study. I'll repeat that, a 14-year study on traders in Taiwan. Does day trading work? Generally speaking, you'd be better off sticking to your day job and not day trading. (laughs) Tell us why. We looked at the day traders in Taiwan. Somewhere around 1%, give or take a little bit, appear to be making money through skill. But they are probably devoting a lot of time to this and, and it's become sort of a job for them. Most day traders lose money and they tend to lose money and continue day trading for quite a while after the initial losses. So they continue to lose money. They continue to day trade and then eventually stop. Now, if you are day trading for fun and you can afford your losses, there's nothing wrong with that. But if, if this is money that that you need for you know retirement or any other purpose, then Day trading is probably, it's going to leave you with less money than you would have had if you'd just taken a buy and hold approach to investing. Let's talk about asymmetric information risk. I see you've been reading some of my papers. I've been reading a lot about you, Terry. <laughs> um, okay, so one of the things I, I, I talk about, or my co-authors and I talk about in that paper, is that the Taiwanese investors through active trading, and this is looking at all, we looked in another paper at all the Taiwanese investors. We had the trading records for everyone trading on the Taiwanese stock exchange, in, individuals as well as institutional investors. And we found that individual investors were as a group losing money. It, it was roughly 
drop their returns by about 3.8 percentage points a year, which is huge. Mm. In fact, we added up the losses in dollar terms and came out to be about 2.2% of GDP. It was a lot. Now, that was counting trading losses, like buying the individuals trading with institutions. It was their trading losses, their market timing losses, the commissions they were paying, and there's a transactions tax in Taiwan. But this is, this is some serious money. Now, a question that we've been asked, I've been asked presenting papers is, well, what does that mean when we come to the U.S.? Well, for one thing, Taiwanese or, or investors, Australia, so is it cross-cultural? Right. right. So the Taiwanese investors trade much more actively, and they run up commissions just because they're trading so much. And the U.S. and Australia don't have a transactions tax, so the Taiwanese investors are paying that. But the one thing in their favor is, in our sample period, a about 89% of trades were being made by individuals. So if you placed a trade, chances are the person on the other side of that trade was an individual and on average was no better informed than you. In the US, and I suspect most likely in Australia, when you place a trade, the counterparty to that trade, the person who ultimately fills the other side of that trade, is very likely either an institutional investor, as in some guy in the Goldman Sachs building down in southern Manhattan, or a computer that's been programmed by some guy with a PhD in statistics or physics. So you're on the wrong side of what we call asymmetric information risk. Probably the counterparty your trade is better informed than you are. So I just want to jump in with a quote from you. You've said, for an individual to not believe they are not at an informational disadvantage when they're trading against guys from Goldman Sachs, is completely naive. I probably did say that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll stick to that one. And yeah. I'll, I'll give you another quote. Many of the mistakes investors make come from a lack of any understanding of the innate disadvantages they face. I'll, I'll stick with it. <laughs> Would these be some yeah. of the disadvantages, this asymmetric bias? The institutional investors, they have access to almost certainly more information than you do. They're getting it faster. They have more training in most cases. Uh, they have te- they're working in teams. You're at a big disadvantage. Okay, so let's talk about it's like going on to a basketball court with a professional NBA star. <laughs> you have no hope. <laughs> That's pretty much true. Like, why would you think you can beat a professional at his own game with anything but occasional luck? Okay, let's talk about another paper you've done. All that glitters, going with crowds and attention-grabbing stocks. Are we really like children fighting over a new toy? Well, Brad Barber and I wrote that paper. We asked ourselves a question. We said, okay, individual investors have so many choices when it comes to buying individual stocks. In the U.S., there's 500 in the S&P 500 alone, 5,000, the Wilshire 5,000. And you can go beyond that. And we said, so how are individuals choosing their stocks? Now, there might be a few who are carefully filtering through the universe of stocks using their computers. But we know that's not what the majority are doing. And what we, we speculated, we said, well, we bet that most individual investors are waiting for stock to catch their attention and then asking themselves, Is this something I like or don't like? 
But that means that attention is taking the filtering that big universe of stocks down to a smaller subset that's manageable and preferences and beliefs are entering in after attention's done its job. So for example, suppose that there were, let's just say 12 attention grabbing stocks one day. These are mentioned in the Wall Street Journal or they're on CNN or you know someplace CNBC. Let's say we have two, two investors, you and me, and uh, Caroline, we'll assume that you are a Graham and Dodd style fundamental investor and you know how to read accounting uh, reports. And That's exactly I'll, the sort say, of investor I wouldn't be. <laughs> okay. And let's say that I'm a uh, momentum investor. I believe that what goes up goes up. I buy some stock that's had positive earnings surprises for three quarters. And you buy a different stock that is sound fundamentals and that maybe has been out of favor and looks very, you know, something that Warren Buffett would be proud of you to buy. <laughs> okay. And uh, so our preferences matter. But again, attention took the choice set from 5,000 down to a dozen. So in any case, this was what we thought was likely happening. We did a number of tests on it. We used different proxies for attention. For example, we used unusual trading volume. And we said if a stock's trading more than usual, nearly tautological that people are paying attention to it. So our prediction was that individual investors would be on the buy side of the market for attention-grabbing stocks, like stocks trading more than usual. That's exactly what we found. We also found they were on the buy side of the market for yesterday's big losers and big winners, stocks that were likely to have been in the news. The other issue is why doesn't attention matter as much for institutions? Basically because they have more of it. It's not as limited a resource for institutions. Institutional investors are spending all day looking at the market. They're working in teams. They're more likely to be using computers to filter through their choices. All right. Let's talk about another deadly sin. You have three daughters. As a chick, in asking you this question, I'm not feeling that confident. But if I was a guy, I'd be feeling really confident. Let's talk about the differences between the way men and women trade. All right. Well, my good friend and co-author, uh, Brad Barber, and I also wrote a paper on differences in how men and women trade, uh, which we titled Boys Will Be Boys. The intent of this paper was a test of a theory that overconfidence leads people to trade more and to earn less. And we'd written, I'd written a paper about that, and then Brad and I'd written another paper where we showed that the most active investors tended to earn less than the buy and hold investors. But we thought, well, an ideal study would be one where you had a large sample of investors and you could separate them into the more and the less overconfident investors. Then you have the prediction that the more overconfident investors are going to trade more and that, that that will hurt their returns. Well, we didn't have a way of administering psychological tests of overconfidence to investors, but we did come up with this proxy for overconfidence based on papers in the psychology literature that said that men tend to be more overconfident than women, and this is particularly strong in certain areas, things that in our society might be viewed as in the male domain, uh, hard sciences like the mathematical sciences and areas such as things such as finance. We separated out our investors for a little over 30,000 investors. We knew the gender of the investor who had opened up an account. 
and we looked at our prediction was men would be trading more than women. And we found that that was true. Men traded about 45% more actively than women. 45%? In our yes. Wow. And single men traded 67% more actively than single women. Some people have commented that perhaps single men just don't have enough to do with their time. But in any case, they <laughs> traded very actively. And then we looked at the effect of trading on people's returns. And that was pretty straightforward. We'd look at each account to see what was in the account at the beginning of the year. We calculated what that account would have earned with a buy and hold strategy for the year. Then we calculated what that account actually earned. We subtracted the buy and hold return from the actual return. And that gives you basically impact of trading on the return. Now, both men and women on average, did worse than buy and hold. But what was critical to our hypothesis is men underperformed by one percentage point more a year than women, single men by 1.4 percentage points. Because they're overconfident. They might be. <laughs> Let's talk about another deadly sin that you've discovered, that people are more likely to sell winners than admit defeat and sell their losses. Are investors stupidly stubborn? Well, there are a couple sides to this. The effect itself is huge, and it's robust, and it shows up. You know, I, I documented it with individual stocks and, and individual investors at discount firm. You know, we found it, my co colleagues and I found it also in the Taiwanese data, but people have looked for this in data sets uh, all over the world now. There have been studies that show institutional investors doing this, many studies showing individual investors in different countries doing this. So the behavior is very strong. The downside of it is a little less clear, certainly in the U.S. and several other countries from a tax point of view. This is the opposite of what you should be doing. As it turns out in the sample I originally looked at, it also led to bad outcomes. Now, there's not necessarily... In, in classical or neoclassical finance, there's no clear reason why past losers should go on to lose more. But there is something that an empirical finding, empirical regularity in many markets called momentum, where stocks that have done well over the last six months to a year do tend to outperform over the next year. And so it looks like what happens when people sell their winners and hold on to their losers is they get taxes wrong and they end up on the wrong side of momentum cycles. Why? I think that one's pretty straightforward. When you sell for a loss, you feel bad. When you sell for a gain, you feel good. And people like to do things that make them feel good. So let's talk about that, that modern financial theory up until 20 years ago, up until you pretty much, was dominated by the idea that people are rational when it comes to money. But you've proved that that's not so, and you've turned the preachings of classical economics on its head. Okay, so let's be clear here. I'm not alone in, in the people doing this. I was fortunate. Uh, my mentor was Danny Kahneman who is a psychologist. He's not an economist, but he won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2002. And back in 1989, I was an undergrad studying with Danny, and I was hoping to get my PhD in psychology. And Danny convinced me I should go into finance, not psychology, and apply 
behavioral decision theory in, in finance. So I got some good steering and I got some good advice, but I was lucky to be you know, one of the early people working in this field. And yes, we have found, I, I think that probably the majority of financial economists these days wouldn't argue with the uh, claim that individual investors are not absolutely fully rational when it comes to their decisions. And I think a lot of, uh, there's probably even many who wouldn't argue with the claim that being human affects institutional investors as well. All right. Statistically, two-thirds of statistics are boring, but statistically, you're in the one-third. Who doesn't think so? (laughs) What do you love about statistics? What do I love about statistics? I actually do love statistics. I My undergrad degree, even though I was intending to get my PhD in psychology, my undergrad degree was in statistics. One of the things Danny Kahneman has talked about, he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Great book. And one of the things he says there is that subjective confidence comes from sort of the quality of the story that you can tell, the coherence, the coherence of the story you can tell. Can you like tell a good story and then people buy that? And that people ignore the the quality of the evidence. Basically, they ignore the statistics. Are there numbers to back up your beliefs? Did you ever read the book or hear about the book Moneyball? It's, uh, there was also a movie made of it. Well, it was a, uh, Michael Lewis wrote it, and it was about the my local baseball team, the Oakland A's. Oh, with Brad Pitt? How, the movie yeah, Brad Pitt was in it, yes. And how... The Oakland A's used statistics to create a really good, to put together a really good baseball team without a lot of money because they challenged the accepted beliefs in baseball about what made a, you know, what sort of players made a, bas- a baseball team that won. And they went and they looked at the statistics and they said, oh, well, you know, it might not be hitting home runs that wins games so much as getting to first base, even if it's by taking a walk. And I think in a way, statistics keep us honest and they make us smarter. And so for me, what I was able to do was show things that many people actively involved in dealing with investors, including many financial advisors, already basically knew to be true, like people holding on to their their losers and selling their winners. Many financial advisors knew that that's what made people happy. And on the other side, financial economists assumed not to be true because that was inconsistent with their theories of rational decision making. You know, it was a combination of data and statistics that enabled me to say, look, real people are behaving this way, which changed the minds of some financial economists and confirmed the beliefs of people who'd been working with individual investors and, you know, allowed us to sort of move forward with with uh, financial economics. So I think statistics are a great tool. And uh, for me, they're fun, but I realize not everyone agrees. <laughs> so how do you think you have helped financial economics move forward? You've reversed the thinking. How has that changed the game? Obviously, there were people writing in behavioral finance before me, some of my good friends. The one thing I was able to do is get data on the actual trading of individual investors and say, look, real people are behaving with their money 
the way Kahneman and Tversky and psychologists predicted, not the way economists assumed. And that made a difference because before that, most of the, the, the sort of evidence was coming out of psychology laboratory experiments. And that was easier for economists to dismiss. They'd say things like, oh, it's a bunch of undergrads in a lab. There's no real money at stake. This isn't how real people are behaving. So being able to obtain trading records and analyze trading records of actual people making decisions about their money was influential. So what approach should investors take? What are they better off doing? Well, not all of your investors are going to like what I'm about to say. I know what you're going to say. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know what I'm going to say, right? I would say that with your serious money, with the money you're counting on, you know, for retirement, I would take most of it and I would buy low cost, well diversified funds. And often the way to get the lowest cost is to buy things like index funds. Now, index funds are not perfect and I'm aware of some of their shortcomings. However, they're more perfect than 95% of the other choices out there. And you might say, well, then why not buy one of those 5% that are better? The problem is, most investors, once you open up the floodgate and say, go pick a fund, you know what they're going to look at? Last year's performance. They will chase performance over and over again, and what they will ignore is fees. And it turns out fees are for certain, and performances, relative performance is ephemeral. So I'd say go and buy a low cost. It doesn't have to be an index fund, but keep the fees really low. Now, if you love trading, take some money that you can afford to play with and have some fun. My dad loved trading. He was in an investment club. And I would say to him, Dad, go for it. But don't take mom's retirement money (laughs) and go for it. And Terry, one final question. Where can people go to find out more about your work and what you do? Well, one place would be to go to my YouTube channel, which is called Making Smart Financial Decisions. And there you'll find a bunch of videos I've made about investing and other aspects of personal finance and some videos on individual investor and the research I've been talking about today. Terry O'Dean, thanks so much for your time this morning coming on to Talking Trading and talking about all your findings in behavioral psychology, economics and putting the empirical data on trading. Thanks, Caroline. It's been a pleasure. And that is all for today's show, guys. I hope you enjoyed Terence O'Dean. Stay tuned next week to hear Benjamin Harvey on how to build your wealth mindset. I'm Caroline Stephen. Have a good week trading in the markets. We'll see you next show. You've been listening to TalkingTrading.com.au with Caroline Stephen. Make sure you are subscribed to this website to receive the very latest market views, commentary and expert opinion. Tune in next week as we've got a bumper show planned. Bye for now. The views represented on Talking Trading are general in nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regard to your own situation.